Hello, and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In our first episode this season, Away from the Dyadache, we will travel past the eastern edge of that empire into Central Asia and China. Maps and images for this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And please, if you have a moment, rate us on iTunes and leave a review. This is a story of Zheng Qian, a Chinese emissary sent to enlist the help of a faraway nation against a common enemy. Zheng was unable to form an alliance. Instead, he formed the relationships and pathways that led directly to the Silk Road, connecting China to the West and eventually to Rome. This is Season 2, Episode 6, Zheng Chan, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Zheng Chan was probably born around 200 BC in Hangzhong, a city in what is now the Shangxi province, although some sources put his date of birth a few decades later. In relation to modern-day Chinese borders, it is somewhat northern and somewhat central, on the western edge of that eastern population mass. It's about a thousand miles west of today's Shanghai. At the time of his birth, though, much more important was its proximity to Chang'an, something like 150 miles away. Chang'an was the newly created capital of the new dynasty. The dynasty was the Han, which had come to power in 206 BC. This was China's second imperial dynasty, immediately following the Qin dynasty. The Qin dynasty had united China's seven warring states and ruled for a brief period before collapsing upon the death of the emperor. The Han dynasty that succeeded it brought stability to the region and ushered in an era of expansion and economic prosperity. We don't know what Zhang's life was like until he was probably a senior citizen. It appears that he was some sort of official, perhaps a minor nobleman. It's possible that he served militarily in some capacity, but again, we don't really know. It's likely that he was educated and groomed to be an official of some sort, not entirely unlike what would have happened if he was minor nobility in Rome at the same time. What we do know is that he had some familiarity with the tribal region bordering China. This would indicate he served out there at some point in his long career. The first we hear of Zheng Chan's life was actually in the early 130s BC, and he was probably in his 60s at this point. A new emperor had been crowned, and Han China was entering a golden age. Under Emperor Wu of Han, or Wu Di, China expanded greatly and grew into one of the greatest powers in the world. Zhang probably came to the capital soon after Emperor Wu took over. At the time, to the west and north of Han China, many nomadic tribes vied for supremacy and often threatened the empire. These groups were pastoral nomads. They followed their herds of cattle around. While they may not have been as numerous as the Chinese, they lived on horseback. So if there were 100,000 of them, there were 100,000 mounted soldiers. 
One of these tribes, the Yuji, was in a spot of trouble. They had lived not too far to the west, in the modern-day province of Gansu. Being neighbors, the Han had contact with them and traded with them. No doubt there were skirmishes at times, but the Chinese mostly recorded them as a distant trading partner, rather than as an enemy. The Yuji had been a strong power in the eastern steppe in the 3rd century BC, but by the 2nd century, the Xiongnu took control. They created a large confederation of Mongolian steppe tribes, united under them, and they weakened the Yuji considerably. Around 175 BC, the Yuji began migrating out of the region after being crushed in battle by the Xiongnu. Most of the Yuji, the greater Yuji, fled west and north across the Tian Shan Mountains, today's border between China and Kyrgyzstan. If you just went, I didn't know China bordered Kyrgyzstan, you might want to go to thealmostforgotten.com and check out some of the maps I posted of the time period and the region. I know they helped me understand what was going on. In the decades that followed, life did not immediately improve for the Yuji. At some point, the Xiongnu killed the Yuji chief, and their king made a drinking vessel out of his skull, because that's what steppe nomads did for fun. The Yuji were hurting, and they were on the run, but rumor had it they were looking for revenge. This gave China an opportunity. Before we get into that, though, since we've already begun to set the scene, let's take this time to tour the rest of the world at the time we first hear about Zhang, a little after 140 BC. Starting with Central Asia to the west of today's China, the Greco-Bactrian kingdom had ruled over a large area after declaring independence from an empire you may have heard of, the Seleucid Empire, around 250 BC. They expanded into northeastern Iran and in the other direction up to Sogdia, also called Sogdiana, and Fergana. The ancient borders of these two regions, the Fergana Valley and the former satrapy of Sogdia, are a bit ambiguous, but today it is mostly covered by Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. By 140 BC, though, the Greco-Bactrian kingdom's influence had waned, as both the growing Parthia to the west and the displaced Yuji coming from the northeast had checked its power. It had been invaded, probably by the Yuji, a few years earlier, and the city of Ai-Kanum had been destroyed in the conquest around 145 BC. Many of the remaining Greeks from the kingdom were pushed into the Indus River Valley and interacted with the Sangha Empire in India. The Sanghas had overthrown the great Mauryan Empire, although it only ruled over the Gangetic Plain in the north and east, similar to the Nanda Empire that preceded them both. To the west, the Parthians were indeed on the rise, and they were helping to cause the decline and eventual end of the Seleucid Empire, who now resided mostly in Syria. The other power that helped speed this along was the Roman Republic, which, along with China, was now the world's strongest power. By this time, it had completely destroyed Carthage and had major victories over the remnants of the empires of the Diadochi. It controlled the Iberian Peninsula, southern Gaul, and the area around Carthage and Utica in today's Tunisia. It had also taken Greece, Macedon, and western Anatolia. Smaller states vied for power in the rest of Anatolia. One of these was the Kingdom of Pontus, which was wealthy, but not yet a major power. 
its king, the father of Mithridates the Great, was an ally of Rome. Europe, outside of the Mediterranean region, was ruled by tribes of Gauls and Celts in the west and center, and Slavs as you move further east. On the southern coast of the Mediterranean, the Ptolemaic kingdom was still holding on in Egypt, while Mauritania and Numidia reigned in the west. The kingdom of Cush in Meroe to the south of Egypt still probably held more sway than Aksum in that region. And in the Americas, the Nazca culture was beginning to flourish in the Andes, while in Central America, the early Maya and Zapotec cities were growing, and Teotihuacan, which soon became the largest city in the region, may have been settled. Back in Chang'an, Emperor Wu was getting worried about the rising power of the Xiangnu. They weren't just another tribe to the north. They had done a decent job of uniting a confederation of steppe nomads and posed a real threat to China. Wu saw an opportunity to enlist the Yuji as allies against the Xiangnu. The problem was, with the Tibetan plateau to the south, the only way to get word to the Yuji was to go through the territory that they were just pushed out of, which was now Xiangnu territory. So, he asked for volunteers. And Zhang Qian raised his hand. In 138 BC, Zhang left to find the Yuji, taking with him a man named Ganfu, who was a Xiangnu and a former slave. They went with a group of followers, but they didn't make it very far. Once past the relative safety of the Chinese hinterlands, they fell easy prey to the mounted and mobile Xiangnu. They were captured, although they don't seem to have been treated too poorly. Zhang, an official emissary of the Emperor of China, was taken to the Xiangnu king. Zhang asked for permission to travel through their lands, but the king refused. He basically said, hey, why would I let China send ambassadors to my enemies on the other side of my kingdom? Would China let me do that? Zhang was held for what was recorded as 10 years in the Han Dynasty Chronicles. In that time, he may have advised the Xiangnu king on relations with China. He was not kept in prison, but he wasn't allowed to leave. He did marry, though, and have a son. Over the course of the next decade, it seemed that he gained more of the king's trust, but never changed his loyalty. He was eventually able to sneak away at some point without being noticed. After a decade in the Xiangnu court, Zhang made his escape with his family, Ganfu, and some other men in tow. Now, did it really take him 10 years to finally have an opportunity to sneak off when nobody was looking? I don't know, if he was in the Xiangnu court, he may have stayed willfully, at least for part of the time, in order to learn more about them. When he did finally get away, amazingly, he marched not east back home, but west, away from China, and made his way towards Yuji territory, still intent on fulfilling his mission 10 years later. He first encountered a people called the Daiyuan in the Fergana Valley. They had heard of China and had tried to establish communications with the Chinese, but had been unable to do so. The Daiyuan were happy to meet an emissary from the mysterious and powerful distant neighbor, and they helped give him passage to Sogdia, north and west of their Fergana Valley. He reached Sogdia, which is where Seleucus' wife Apama was from, although by the time Zhang reached it, it was no longer under Greek control. From there, he was sent south, 
to the territory of the Da Yuji, the Greater Yuji. This territory was on the northern side of a river that Westerners call the Oxus. This river feeds into the Aral Sea, and the region is sometimes called Transoxiana. It sits mostly in today's Uzbekistan. There, he met the crown prince who was in charge as the king had been killed, and he delivered his message. The prince explained to him that the Yuji, having found nice new territory to live in, far away from the Xiangnu, had no interest in turning around and fighting them. He no longer needed to take revenge on them, and he felt that the distance from China was so great now that they didn't have to do it just because the emperor wanted them to. His answer received, Zhang did not immediately return to China. Instead, he spent a year traveling around the Yuji lands, and even made his way into the part of Bactria that was still under Greek control. After all, what's one more year away? He was not able to change any minds, but he was able to study the lands he visited and learned of quite a few of those that he didn't get to see personally. He reported what he learned of these people back to China and turned the empire's attention in that direction. After his travels and learning about all these other regions that he never reached, he decided it was time to head back to China, whereupon he was promptly captured by the Xiangnu again. This time, though, he was only held captive about a year. There were internal secession struggles, perhaps a civil war, and he took advantage of the chaos to get the heck out of Dodge, finally returning to China in the mid-120s BC. Upon his return, Zhang was honored by Emperor Wu. He was elevated to the rank of Imperial Palace Counselor in reward for his efforts. According to the Cambridge History of China, quote, Zhang Qian duly reported on the possibility of communicating with the states of the Northwest, and he hinted at the potential value of trade with those regions. He also pointed out the advantages in forging an alliance with the other peoples who shared a common cause with China in their enmity with the Xiangnu. Unquote. So, what did he have to say about all these regions? On his first stop, which we already mentioned, the Daiyuan people in the Fergana Valley, he reported that the people there lived in walled cities and that they grew rice, wheat, and wine. They rode horses and used bows and halberds or pikes. It is speculated that these people may have been the remnants of the Greek settlers from Alexander's conquest. Alexander did take the Fergana Valley, and it remained under Seleucid control for another 50 years before becoming part of the splinter Greco-Bactrian kingdom. They may have, when Zhang arrived, been under the rule of Scythian nomads, as he talks about how they shoot arrows on horseback. Then again, living on the border of the vast steppe, it's possible that this was a Greco-Bactrian rump state that had adopted some local military customs. They are described similarly to the Greco-Bactrians, and the name Da Yuan means great or greater Yuan. Yuan was probably derived from a local word for Greeks, as most Eastern languages refer to these people not as Greeks, but rather Ionians. In the local languages, it comes out pretty close to the word Yuan. I suppose if Alexander had left Macedonian legions in Bactria instead of Greek ones, they might have been the Da Macedon, and there would be a lot less speculation. This time around, he didn't visit, but did hear about and describe the Wusun people, who lived north and east of Fergana and the Dayun just south of Lake Baikal, 
and on the edge of this young new Khanate. They were a group of nomadic herdsmen and were skilled fighters who were strong enough to operate semi-independently from the Xiangnu. He describes Sogdia as a region with nomads who behave similarly to the Yuji and are subject to them, at least in the southern regions. Beyond Sogdia, he wrote about another group of steppe nomads that he didn't visit. These were probably the Alans, living on the northern side of the Caspian Sea. From Sogdia, he went and visited the Yuji, and he describes them as nomads. He went on to describe their similar behavior to the Xiangnu, and that they had over a 100,000 mounted bowmen. A half a century earlier, they had dismissed the Xiangnu as insignificant, but they were eventually defeated by them and forced west until they reached the area north of the Oxus River. Zhang also visited Bactria at the time, where the remnant Greek state remained, and described their customs, including living in walled cities unlike the surrounding nomads. He specifically called out the similarities to those of the Daiyuan, another hint that the Daiyuan were indeed Greeks. They didn't have one king, and each city operated independently, a political apparatus that would have felt quite familiar to the Greeks living there. He also noted that they were not strong warriors, just good merchants, and were subjects of the Yuji. He went on to describe the capital city of Bactria, today's Balk in northern Afghanistan, as a bustling market town. He was surprised to find goods from China there, which had flowed through India to reach Bactria. He then went on to describe India as a country that was damp and hot, near a great river. They rode elephants into battle, and they too lived in houses rather than as nomads, and behaved a lot like the Greco-Bactrians. That's probably because at the time, in the Indus River Valley just southeast of Bactria, were the Indo-Greek kingdoms, offshoots of the Greco-Bactrians. Zhang realized that since India was south and east of where he was exploring, China could probably get there via an easier route. Instead of his difficult journey from Chang'an northwest through Jiangnu territory and then going south, turning, and wheeling back east to reach India, he personally suggested that they should go through the Sichuan region to the southwest of Chang'an in order to get to India. He thought they just had to cross through some Tibetan territory and they'd make it through. He didn't realize that if they went across the Tibetan plateau, they'd have to then cross the Himalayas. And even then, he wouldn't be in the Indus River Valley with the people he was writing about. He'd be much further east with the Sangha Empire in the Ganges River Valley. He wrote about more places he didn't reach, such as the Parthian Empire, which was further west in modern Iran. He describes them as city dwellers and merchants who travel far on carts and ships, and that the country was quite large. Another one of these places he didn't go to, but described, thanks to his conversations, was modern Syria, at the time still part of the Seleucid Empire. He hinted that the Parthians were expanding and subjugating parts of this region, and he also noted that these people grew rice and had large birds with huge eggs. After learning all of this, the emperor realized that the Greco-Bactrians and the Parthians, with their houses and their trade, were probably wealthy. Zhang's description sounded a little bit like he was describing China, albeit not as strong, as opposed to all these nomadic kingdoms that surrounded China. He also saw opportunities to ally with 
other nomadic steppe warriors who may be willing to do so for the right amount of cash. The emperor decided to take up Zhang's idea of sending out ambassadors from Sichuan province, which seems closer to Central Asia than northwestern China. But though he sent a few of them out on multiple routes, none of them were actually able to make it there. Over the next few years, rather than exploring, Zhang was involved in military operations closer to home, as the war with the Xiangnu heated up. He had successes as a sub-commander of an army fighting them, helping provision and feed the army as it marched through hostile territory. This earned him a noble title in 123 BC. But his fortunes quickly reversed when he was fighting in northeastern China a year later. The Xiangnu attacked a Chinese army unit, and he did not come quickly enough to rescue them. He was disgraced, and his noble title was revoked. By 121 BC, though, the Xiangnu threat had diminished greatly after Chinese armies marched into their territory and had several victories. Throughout this time, despite his military disgrace and lack of station, Zhang, who had made his way back to Chang'an again, was consulted by the emperor. Putting aside his incredible number of frequent flyer miles, he may have been a valuable advisor for another reason. Remember, he had actually lived with the Xiangnu for a decade, so his perspective was probably unique, insightful, and valued. One suggestion of Zhang's was to bribe the Wusan into an alliance through gifts, money, and intermarriage. The Wusan, you may recall, were based to the north and west, past the desert, but further north than the Yuji and the Fergana Valley. Essentially, they were due west of the Xiangnu territory, as opposed to due west of China like the others. The emperor agreed with his suggestion, and in around 115 BC, he sent Zhang off to see the Wusan. Zhang may have been like, wait, you're sending me again? But he proved to be the right man to go. From the Cambridge Book of Chinese History, quote, The court approved this proposal, and Zhang Qian was again sent to the western regions with a party of 300 members, probably in 115 BC or slightly earlier. Knowing that peoples in the western regions were generally greedy for Han wealth and goods, the party took along tens of thousands of cattle and sheep and large quantities of gold and silk goods as gifts from the emperor to leaders of the western states, unquote. He made it there south of Lake Baikal with his large retinue of followers and gifts. But the old king of the Wusan wanted nothing to do with China. He was content with Wusan's semi-independence as a vassal, mostly paying lip service to the Xiangnu. And in the midst of some internal dynastic troubles, he was not willing to ally with China and enter into conflict, as his kingdom was not entirely stable. This mission was another failure of diplomacy, just like with the Yuji, in that he couldn't convince the king to ally with China. But more important than a potential alliance, the mission did something else. It really became the beginning of China's expansion westward. Because Zhang Qian also brought along, according to the records of the Grand Historian written just a few years later, quote, assistant envoys holding credentials whom he might send to and leave behind in other nearby countries, unquote. Zhang sent assistant ambassadors out to Fergana, Sogdia, Bactria, Parthia, and India with guides and interpreters provided by the Wusan. 
The purpose was to get these different peoples to eventually come back to China and see the wealth of the vast empire. Zhang then returned to China, this time safely, and was given another title, Great Traveler. This may have been honorific, but it may have also been a job, something like a foreign minister. But he died about a year later, in 113 BC, possibly over 90 years old. The events he set in motion, though, were far from over. China's interest beyond its western border had been stoked. According to the Cambridge Histories, quote, The Han Empire began its military campaigns in the western regions in 108 BC with an attack on Lulan and Jushi. Lulan, a small state with a population later recorded as 14,100, lay beyond the western threshold of Han China. It was the first major way station on the Silk Road after leaving Dunhuang, and it was the key to Han expansion into Central Asia, unquote. The Lulan Kingdom was later known as Shanshan, with a capital in the oasis city of Chiemo. The Jushi or Gushi culture lived in the Turpan Basin, and their capital city was the oasis of Turpan. Both these cities are in today's northwest Xinjiang province, and, probably on account of being towns built on oases, still exist today. The Han began incorporating this eastern part of the western Taklamakan Desert into their empire, at least as client kingdoms. They wanted to pacify these regions so they could more easily travel to meet with larger powers such as Wusan. The assistant ambassadors Zhang had sent out began to open up interaction between China and Central Asia, something that really had not happened before his efforts. Over the next few years, the ambassadors began to trickle back to China, bringing with them representatives from the countries they had visited. China began to have diplomatic relations with these countries in Central Asia. The Wusan began receiving more ambassadors from China, and the Xiangnu were not happy about it. So Wusan asked for alliance with China. This was granted, and in exchange, Emperor Wu asked for a specific breed of horse from the Fergana Valley that Zhang had described on his travels. These are known alternatively as Fergana horses, blood-sweating horses, and heavenly horses. After the Wusan sent some over, the emperor decided he needed even more, as they were stronger and more powerful than native Chinese horses. These horses became one of the first set of goods imported along this route into China. The emperor was not satisfied with the few heavenly horses he received. He wanted more. He kept sending envoys to try to obtain more, but the Dayuan in Fergana were holding out on him. He sent gold and silver to try and buy horses, but still couldn't obtain more. So, in what is known as the War of Heavenly Horses, the Chinese emperor sent a military force against these displaced Ionians in 104 BC. The first attempt didn't go so well. After marching across the Taklamakan Desert, much of the force, which initially may have been over 25,000 men, had died. Starvation, but also a defeat in battle and constant raiding, convinced the general that he wouldn't be able to take on the Dayuan with his remaining force. He returned to a garrison town in western China and wrote to the emperor. Emperor Wu, concerned that now the Dayuan and its more powerful neighbors in Bactria and Parthia would think the Chinese weak, decided to send a larger force. 
China, at this point, was once again involved in conflict with the resurgent Xiongnu, and many advisors cautioned against this expedition. But the emperor wanted these horses specifically for the fight against the Xiongnu, so he forged ahead. This larger force was properly provisioned for the long journey across a desert, and it made its way to the Fergana Valley in much better shape than the last one. They engaged in a battle with the Dayuan and won, causing the Greeks to retreat within their city walls. While this may have been the city of Fergana, I've also seen it named as the city of Kujan, not far away from Fergana, across the modern-day borders into Tajikistan. Kujand was a major city in the region and probably very close to one founded by Cyrus the Great to mark the most northeastern extent of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Kujand today also sits on the site of a city called Alexandria Escate, or Alexandria the Furthest. It was Macedonia's furthest garrison in this direction as well. The Roman author Curtius, writing in the 1st century AD, claimed this city was still settled by Greeks as late as 30 BC, further corroborating our assumption that the Dayuan are the descendants of Ionian colonists. After a siege, they negotiated a truce, and the Dayuan sent over a large number of horses, as well as the head of their king, and the Chinese left them in peace. According to Walter Percival Yetz, quote, the gain was not merely a score or two of superior horses and a breeding stock of lesser quality. The Chinese prestige had been firmly established all along the great highway to the west, and the road became free to Chinese commerce, unquote. On the return trip, the general that was sent over returned with much of his rather large army still in one piece, so he was able to secure subjugation from the lands on his route. This tributary relationship was not uncommon for the great Chinese empire to wherever they visited, and most places complied, but the further you went from China proper, the less likely it was to be meaningful. In this case, though, China just didn't go on a mission of exploration and then ignore that region. Its interest in the West and the products it could bring was awakened. The fact that Zhang had met with the Yuji may have helped this situation. I mentioned before that the Chinese had known the Yuji for centuries. Before the Yuji had been forced out of the region north of China by the Xiangnu, they did have trade relations with China. Jade, which was kind of the official gem of kings and emperors, was mined extensively in the Taklamakan Desert, and the Yuji helped bring that jade into China through trade for hundreds of years before they left the region. So, part of the opening up of the trade along the Silk Road was actually a resumption of this jade trade, but with the Yuji much further west. Shinru Liu, in the Journal of World History, wrote, quote, The memory of more friendly transactions between the Yuji and the Chinese certainly made them natural allies against the Xiongnu. Even though Zhang Qian could not convince the Yuji who had already settled in fertile Bactria to fight with the Xiongnu again, China and the Yuji resumed an exchange of goods, unquote. She then goes on to describe recently discovered evidence that trade between China and the Yuji not only continued after Zhang left the region, it soon began to flourish. We now know of documented evidence of food supplies being given to Yuji envoys in a Chinese border town, and written letters of communications between the two countries. 
The Yuji eventually worked their way further south and east and formed the Kushan Empire, which ruled over much of northern India as far as Pataliputra, the old Nanda capital, in the first centuries AD. The relationships that Zhang and his ambassadors formed opened China to a greater understanding of the West. China's relationship with Central Asia grew, and as a direct result of Zhang's mission, Emperor Wu decided to expand Chinese territory west to the Taklamakan Desert, as described by the Cambridge Histories. Quote, Caravans followed the Silk Roads on the northern or southern edges of the Taklamakan Desert, which were controlled by a series of small tribes or states settled on the oases. It was a matter of prime importance to the Chinese to win the friendship of these people and deny it to the Xiangnu. Otherwise, Han travelers and caravans would lie open to molestation or the denial of water and shelter in time of need. The Chinese were therefore willing to acknowledge the independence of the leaders of these small states in return for their toleration of Chinese mercantile activities, unquote. The Han hegemony in this region, when it was strong enough to assert it, led to the ability of merchants and traders to safely travel through it. This opened up a direct path from western China to Central Asia, and through Central Asia to Parthia and the Mediterranean. Chang'an, the capital of Han China, became the eastern terminus of the overland Silk Road. Silk was naturally one of the main commodities that went along these paths, flowing from China west. Spices and pepper were another main west-flowing good. In return, Rome sent iron products, glass, and gold. Of course, the Silk Road didn't just bring in goods from the west, as well as those more nearby horses and jade. It brought knowledge of the west, including art and literature. It also brought in a western religion, at least western to the Chinese, Buddhism. Buddhism became one of the dominant religions in China, which in turn helped spread the religion east into ancient and medieval China's sphere of influence, including Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and elsewhere. With the decline of Buddhism in India as the Hindu faith reasserted influence, China became by far the largest center of Buddhism. Today, even after a number of attempts at suppression, there are something like 250 million Chinese who consider themselves Buddhists. Zhang's influence was the result of initially unintended consequences. Sent on a mission to form an alliance with the Yuji against the powerful Xiangnu, he completely failed in his goal. Never mind that the Han Empire was able to deal with the Xiangnu anyway, and Zhang actually fought in some of these battles. Crucially, though, he recognized the ability to connect China to these faraway regions, and even more importantly, the utility in doing so. His actions and his understanding of the bigger picture outside of his primary mission were vital in opening up the Silk Roads and connecting the Roman world and the Chinese world. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, maps and pictures are on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And please do leave a comment on iTunes and help spread the word about the show. Next episode... We'll be traveling west past the Silk Road and a few hundred years in the future to the chaos right after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>